0: The rest of you want to get out your sermon outline. It says, Hearing the Evidence About Christ. The children head out to the hallway. I was struck. I was out in the hallway before church, and there's a poster um, on the wall out there. They... uh, where is DB? Oh, he left. He couldn't couldn't take it anymore. You know, apparently uh, he posed for the cover of a romance novel in his younger days. You know, you think you know a guy, and uh, oh well. I'm sure we will. Uh, the subject will reappear at the men's retreat. Um, <laughs> Anyways, as uh, Brian told you earlier, we are in the Gospel of John as we uh, uh, race through the Gospel here. We're in John 5, starting at verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. This is Jesus who's speaking. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. But if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he is wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Some hard and difficult words from Jesus as he confronts uh, the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Let's pray, and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, as we hear hard words from Jesus and wonder, what was he talking about? What did he mean? Help us now to understand Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our ears that we may know uh, Jesus more. We may understand him and that ultimately we may believe more than we do now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We uh, live in a day and age uh, where the news is reported uh, pretty much as it happens. And uh, instead of having to tune in to the evening news to find out what happened in the world today, uh, we're able to turn on the news at any time of day or night and find out, in many cases, just what's going on right now. It's a very unique time in history. That's never been able to uh, do that until about the last... Uh, maybe 10 years tops. Areas of our society that have for years been off limits to the television news crews now appear in our living room with increasing regularity. And one of those areas is the American courtroom. In days past, uh, we would see only sketches by courtroom artists. But today, we have entire shows that take place in the courtroom. Uh, And uh, we have shows where you're looking at the plaintiffs and at the defendants themselves. And as I was thinking about this whole situation of seeing what's going on as it happens, I was reminded of uh, last year's um, Senate confirmation uh, hearings uh, Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. Uh, if you remember, those hearings were filled with accusations and allegations against Justice uh, Alito, and they were continually broadcast throughout the nation as they were going on. You could hear the senators questioning him uh, as they were doing it. And it meant in a very real sense that we were all given a chance to decide if Justice Alito was, in fact, fit to hold a seat on the highest court in the land. And the senators knew, uh, no matter what they decided, that almost every American had the opportunity to hear the evidence for themselves and to make their own decisions. And I think sometimes, in fact, they were talking to the people and not to uh, Justice Alito, who was right in front of them, who they're supposed to be questioning. Um, I think some of the comments were, in fact, for the television and radio uh, audience. Um, But as I thought about that, and I thought about that everyone could hear the evidence concerning uh, this one man, Justice Alito, I was struck uh, by the further thought, actually wondering, is everyone hearing the evidence concerning the claims of Christ, the claims that Jesus is making about himself? I mean, after all, in John 5 alone, we saw last week, Jesus has claimed to be equal with God, verse 18, to be the giver of eternal life, verse 24, to be the source of life, verse 26, and to be the one who judges sin, verse 27. Those are all pretty big claims. They're all claims that show that he truly is the Son of God. So if If Jesus claims we're going to be heard in a courtroom or a Senate confirmation hearing today, what evidence would he present? What witnesses would he call to testify on his behalf? And I think our passage today shows us what his reaction would be. Because throughout John 5, Jesus is dealing with his accusers, the Jewish religious leaders, in an open air public arena the first century equivalent of today's televised courtroom. And so we start. He is essentially in this passage on trial. And it's public. People could come and watch and listen. And so we start by seeing the first witness that Jesus calls in the defense of his claims. And that's John the Baptist. Verse 31, first blank there in your outline. John the Baptist, the first witness. And as he starts, Jesus knows that the Old Testament law requires that that there always be at least two, sometimes three, witnesses to establish the truth. We find that in Deuteronomy. It says a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So Jesus calls as his first witness, John the Baptist. He tells the Pharisees in verse 33, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. And Jesus is reminding them that the testimony they heard from John the Baptist was first of all given at their own initiative you remember back to chapter one just a few weeks ago (laughs) it was the pharisees themselves who went to john to question him and john the baptist was a witness who in a sense had been called to the stand by the other side and he's still faithfully testifying to the truth about jesus christ and jesus is telling the pharisees if you won't believe me, at least believe John, whom you questioned. And remember, if you remember back to John chapter 1, John testified publicly in John one twenty-nine, where it says the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then in verse 34, I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So John has testified publicly about Jesus, and Jesus reminds the Pharisees that it isn't him who needs John's testimony, it's they who need John's testimony. Christ teaches us here in verse 34, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He's the defendant here, and he's essentially telling the prosecutors, I still have your best interest. In mind he doesn't need to accept man's testimony but they sure do but they're not only able to hear and understand what John said but they should also accept and believe what he said it will lead them to salvation he says I say these things so that you may be saved and while Jesus is supposedly on the defensive he doesn't lose the opportunity to exhort his listeners in this case his enemies to change their ways to put their faith in him because it's only by believing in him and believing his claims that they'll find salvation and receive eternal life. And people often don't take the trouble to appreciate the truth when it's before them. And many times it's simply because we don't pay attention carefully enough. We don't pay close enough attention to what's being said. I read a story about a woman who's having trouble with her gas bill. And, uh, She always paid what she saw on the bill, but, you know, she would get the bill the next month, and some months it would say she had underpaid, and other months it would say that she overpaid, and she just kind of wrote it off to the bureaucratic red tape of the gas company. And then one day her last check was returned to her, along with a standardized form, which were printed all the various possible reasons for returning her check, And like, you know, you entered the name of the payee incorrectly, or signature was missing, or you left the amount off, or something like that. But all the usual explanations were crossed off. And at the bottom was written, you have been paying the date. Please pay the amount. (laughs) And simply, you know, doing it too quick and not paying attention. That's the Pharisee's problem. They're trying to rush to judgment, and they're not paying attention, and they're not listening to what actually is being said they'd really been paying attention and listened to what john had told them then quite a while ago they would have been able to appreciate the truth and would have started in the right way and that in fact happened with some of john's disciples if you remember they'd been followers of john the baptist and he pointed out jesus and said behold the lamb of god and this is the son of god and he told them to follow jesus and they obeyed and they went off and followed jesus and jesus is now questioning why these religious leaders hadn't done the same thing so he starts with his first witness, who is John the Baptist. And then he calls his second witness, which are Christ's own works. Christ's own works. We see here the testimony of Christ's works is even greater than that of John the Baptist. What Christ does speaks volumes. We know from Matthew chapter 11 that it was this testimony that actually strengthened and encouraged John the Baptist when he was awaiting execution in prison. If you remember the story, John the Baptist had been arrested, he's in prison, he's waiting to be executed, he's suffering, and he sent some of his disciples, surely he's doubting while he uh, waits in prison, and he sent some of his disciples to Jesus to verify that he really was the Messiah. And Christ answered his concerns by testifying to his works. It says, Matthew 11. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What an encouragement for John to hear about what Jesus was doing. that all these things were happening, these miracles and healings, the Gospels being preached. After all, the work that Jesus is doing is the work that's been given to him by God the Father. says in verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. As we saw last week, Jesus says he only does uh, what he sees the Father doing. He does nothing by himself but works together with the Father. And by his works, both his supernatural miracles and his ordinary actions, Jesus is proving to all those around him that he is the one who's been sent by God. But the Jewish leaders don't accept this now. And they won't accept it later. We'll see. We get to John 10. He's going to be questioned again. And he will respond, as we read in our responsive reading this morning. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So it's necessary now. Jesus has called two witnesses, uh, John the Baptist and the witness of his own works. And now he calls in the next witness, and that's God the Father. God the Father, the third witness. And he's taking the gloves off now. He's hitting the Pharisees right between the eyes. He says, not only is he sent by God the Father, but verse 37, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. And then he turns the tables on the Pharisees. He gives them three challenges, all alluding to the Old Testament, which they would have known so well, which at least they claimed to know so well. In the first challenge, he says, his voice you have never heard. Referring to Moses who heard God's voice in Exodus 33. And Jesus is saying, while you haven't heard God's voice like Moses did, you've all had the opportunity since then. As John 3:34 says, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Jesus himself is speaking the very words of God. And they're not listening. That's the first challenge. The second challenge, he says, his form you have never seen. Referring to Jacob who saw God's form in Genesis 32. And Jesus is saying, well, they haven't seen God's form like Jacob did. They've had the opportunity since then, John 1.18. No one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus himself is the very manifestation of God in human form. He said, you don't think you've ever seen God, but you see me. If you've seen me, you see the Father. You don't think you've ever heard God, but if you've heard me, you've heard God. I utter the very words of God. And then he gives him the third challenge, verse 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And here he's probably referring to Joshua and Joshua Warner, possibly the psalmist in Psalm 119 who both hid God's Word in their heart, meditating on it, learning not to sin against it, understanding that God's blessing in their lives was dependent on the indwelling of God's Word in their lives. And Jesus is saying, they don't have the Word of God in their hearts, like Joshua did or like the psalmist did, but they've had the opportunity since then, because Jesus himself is the very Word of God. John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus himself is the very Word of God. And they, the Pharisees, who are acting as the prosecution, have just received a triple indictment from Jesus, who is the defendant. And he's letting them know that God the Father has given them ample evidence. But they haven't heard God, they haven't seen God, They don't have God's word because they don't believe in Christ. And Jesus is clearly challenging them that you can't believe and obey the Father and you can't believe and obey the scriptures if you don't believe and obey the Son. And so then he calls his fourth witness, which is the word of God. The word of God. He calls as his next witness the scriptures themselves. He says, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's telling them, you study the scriptures, you read them, you know them, they testify about me, they testify about Christ. Still, you refuse to come to Christ to receive that eternal life. And it's because verse 42, and this is the real slam dunk indictment in this passage. He says, you don't have the love of God in your hearts. I'm not sure there's a much harsher thing that Jesus could say to somebody. I would hate to be in the position where Jesus Christ is looking me in the eye and saying, You don't have the love of God in your heart. He's telling him, You're too busy trying to get the praise of men to worry about obtaining the praise from God, which only comes by believing and obeying Christ and His Word. In Matthew 5 17, Jesus said, Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus is appealing to the testimony of the scriptures. And in Romans, the apostle Paul writes in Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, talking about Jesus. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. And Jesus is challenging the Pharisees on that point with which they most pride themselves. They boast of how well they know the teachings of Scripture, but they're missing the Messiah to whom the Scriptures point. And it's the same today. We don't read the Bible just to know the Bible. That's the mistake of the Pharisees. We read the Bible so that we might know Christ. And you don't really know the Word of God unless you know the God of the Word. You see, it's not only a question of hearing and understanding. The Pharisees thought they knew the Scriptures, but it's also a question of accepting and believing the Scripture's testimony about Christ and then putting that faith into practice by being obedient to Christ and His Word. So Jesus calls the Scriptures as a witness. And then finally he calls his final witness, and that's Moses. Moses is the fifth witness. He has now really turned the uh, tables on the Pharisees. He's gone from being what he is not, the defendant, to being what he really is, the judge. And the Pharisees are no longer the prosecution, but they have become the defendants. And Jesus tells them, starting in verse 45, Do not think I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Moses, the author of the law. If you believe Moses, you'd believe me. He wrote of me. But if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And Jesus is telling them, they don't have to worry about Jesus accusing them because Moses, whose word they profess who they follow as the greatest Jew of all time. He's their accuser, the great lawgiver. This would have angered the Pharisees. It would have confused the Pharisees. And I'm pretty sure it would have scared the Pharisees. They thought that because they so highly valued the law that surely Moses would be on their side. Their attitude to the law secured his support. No matter who would be against them before God, they could rely on, they could count on Moses. And now Jesus is telling them, the one on whom their hopes were set, Moses, instead of being their advocate, is now their accuser. And he is in effect pronouncing judgment on the Pharisees. He is letting them know if they had believed Moses instead of just reading him, and if they had obeyed the law inwardly in their hearts instead of just outwardly, then there'd be no issue here. They would have believed Christ because Moses was writing about Christ. Moses was pointing to the Messiah. But since you don't believe what he wrote, you can't believe what I say. That's what he's saying. You don't believe Moses, therefore you don't believe Christ. And as John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Unbelief inevitably leads to condemnation. Period. End of sentence. Case closed. It's very hard words of Jesus here. It's not just this little debate. He has just nailed them in the equivalent of the televised courtroom, open air public arena. And everything they held as their greatest pride. We have the law. We know the scriptures. Surely God is on our side. Surely Moses is on our side. And just one by one, Jesus rips those things away. Don't count on that. Don't count on that surely you don't count on Moses. Don't count on how you know the scriptures because it all points to me and you don't believe in me. You know, one of the common arguments we hear today throughout the world, throughout the religious world, not just Christianity, but especially here in America, it's claimed that we have to make allowances for many different religious viewpoints because we live in a pluralist age. We face the fact of religious differences in a way that men didn't have to before in other days, you know, and and we have to reckon with that fact in a way that they did not, that the human race worships God in many different ways, and it's simply religious imperialism to claim that one way, to claim that our way is right and all the others are wrong. But of course, that isn't true at all. Pluralism isn't new. We didn't invent it in the last 20 years. Postmodernism didn't create it. There were more faiths competing for attention in the first century Greco-Roman world than there are in our own day. The variety of faith in antiquity is far greater than it is today. But that didn't embarrass the Christians any more than it had embarrassed their leader, Christ himself for the appearance in the world of the creator of the world. The appearance among men of the maker of all men. The appearance of the one who had given the scriptures to Israel. The appearance in the world of the one who had delivered the law to Moses and who will someday judge all mankind according to that law. His marvelous life and example. His teaching with such authority and goodness. His mighty, powerful miracles. His death and then his resurrection. His ascension to the right hand of God the Father. All of this settled the question of true religion of the right understanding of the law of moses of the identity of the book that is the word of god and of the only possible way of salvation and it remains so today just as in the days of jesus life and his ministry christ is the key that unlocks. All meaning and confessing Christ as the Messiah, the Lord, and the Son of God is the essential prerequisite of any true knowledge, any true love of God, any true understanding of his word and his will. And this most of the religious leaders wouldn't do. And thus they cut themselves off from light and life. And still today, multitudes won't do this to the same dismal End, no matter what they may protest to the contrary this is a scandal we cannot avoid this scandal for scandal it is it became inevitable as soon as jesus stepped into the world and declared john 14 6, no one can come to the father except by me I'm not sure there's a more politically incorrect statement in the Bible. That Christ being the son of God. That means that your view of him must be your view of God. Your view of his will. Excuse me. Must be your view of God's will. Your relationship to him must be your relationship to God. The logic of John fourteen six is inescapable. It's unavoidable. And that's our problem as Christians. If there's unbelievers here today, there may be. I, I don't know. I can't see into your heart. That's probably a good thing. But you shouldn't despise us for this. If anything, you should have sympathy, because we must always go around pronouncing this judgment on others, these harsh words of Jesus. If they do not believe in Jesus Christ, if they do not receive him as the Son of God, as the Lord, as the Savior, if they do not follow him, then the Bible says the love of God is not in them. It's no fun to tell people that. You usually don't even have to tell them that. Just tell them that they have to believe in Jesus. And they'll understand what you're saying. They'll figure out that what you're saying is until and unless they become Christians, they're not right with God. No matter their lives, no matter their religion. And inevitably, they will take that to mean that you think you're better than they are. That's no fun. There's a book on evangelical Christianity by a Duke University professor reports that most American adults have been, quote, witnessed to by evangelical Christians. Most of them considered it an unpleasant experience. And let me tell unbelievers that may be here today, we understand that. We know why they think that. It's much easier to get along with people and to be liked by people, to be popular and well thought of if you tell others their views are just as valid as yours and their philosophy of life is just as legitimate as yours. But of course, Christians can't do that. No one can do that who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And our challenge in getting others to consider the implications of the claims of Christ is to make clear that the scandal, the offense of that, arises from the truth itself. And not from any harshness on our part not from any arrogance on our part, not from any judgmentalism on our part, not from any intellectual imperialism on our part, although, to be honest, Christians are guilty of all those things. We never got around to offending people with the Word of God because we were so offensive ourselves. But we are helped in that by the knowledge that we can share with others that everything we are saying that the truth of Christ reveals about them, for example, that the love of God is not really in them if they don't believe in Jesus Christ, is truth that we have found in ourselves first. Even we who are followers of Christ find rebellion within. You know, we always say we serve the Lord's Supper And there's always a moment we say there's two kinds of people. There's repentant sinners and there's unrepentant sinners, but you're all sinners. There are no non-sinners. And even we who believe in Jesus know how often and how easily the love of God departs from our hearts. How easily we seek to cover up our lack of love for God and our great love for ourselves and we cover it up with all of our religious words and all of our religious deeds. How real, how true must the Lord Jesus' verdict be if even his own followers acknowledge that far too much of the time it is still true of them. These are hard words. We don't deny it. They're offensive words. The people who heard them didn't like them. Then or now, we know that. But we also know that truer words were never spoken than when Jesus said of men and women, you do not have the love of God in your hearts. You may love many things. You certainly love yourself. But if you really loved God, then you would love his son and you would understand and love his word. It was, it is, it will always remain as simple as that. So today you've had the opportunity to sit in the public arena to watch the confirmation hearing to be a part of the televised courtroom. And you've heard the witnesses. Therefore, what verdict do you, the members of the jury, render in the case of Christ? The witnesses were carefully chosen. Each has taken the stand. Do you believe the witnesses? The evidence has been judiciously presented. Have you heard the evidence? And now as a member of the jury, you must deliberate. You must weigh the evidence. You must decide. And it's an important decision for the verdict you reach about Christ is a serious one. The Apostle John tells us the purpose of this gospel, John 20. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And if you decide to believe and thus obey the words of Christ, then it will change your life. And if you decide you don't believe and you're not going to obey the words of Christ, then you stand condemned already because the verdict you render is a verdict for yourself. Choose wisely. We need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close.